Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of Elixir Mix. And this week, we have a very small panel. We have Adi Iyengar. Yep, I'm a small guy, so small panel. <laughs> Hello from Boston. <laughs> That's what you said. I didn't say that. <laughs> and it's me. So it's, it's Adi and me today. And also good to be back. I've been not that often here lately. The work and life are happening a lot. So uh, good, good to be back. Good to, good to have this recording with you, Adi. And we want to talk today about a topic I don't think we've covered, like in, at least not in that framing, uh, building APIs, and APIs in general, in Elixir, like and what all of that means and like, how good Elixir is at that or maybe that and what kind of tools there are. Hey folks, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs. And lately I've been working on actually building out Top End Devs. If you're interested, you can go to topendevs.com slash podcast and you can actually hear a little bit more about my story about why I'm doing what I'm doing with Top End Devs, why I changed it from uh, devchat.tv to Top End Devs. But what I really want to get into is that I have decided that I'm going to build the platform that I always wished I had with devchat.tv and I renamed it to Top End Devs because I want to give you the resources that are going to help you to build the career that you want, right? So whether you want to be an influencer in tech, whether you want to go and just max out your salary and then go live a lifestyle with your family, your friends, or just traveling the world or whatever, I, I want to give you the resources that are going to help you do that. We're going to have career and leadership resources in there, and we're going to be giving you content on a regular basis to help you level up and max out your career. So go check it out at topendevs.com. If you sign up before my birthday, that's December 14th. If you sign up before my birthday, you can get 50% off the lifetime of your subscription. Once again, that's topendevs.com. So Adi, before I hit the record button, we were basically talking, okay, how, how, how we start this off? And you were saying, okay, there's like when you, when you transition through your career, like you start off as like an early career developer, then mid-level, and then at some point senior. And depending on where you are on the journey, you might have different interactions with APIs. Let's say that. Maybe you, you want to give a spin on that? Yeah. I mean, generally as uh, my own career path and as a mentor, other engineers I've seen like in like a, one of the first things, you know, in the transition from junior to mid or junior to senior, whatever you want to call it, people do is like kind of start dabbling with API calls, both from like the client and server side. So yeah, I think from client side, there's like, you know, Elixir has like many, and I don't want to focus on server, but I'll just quickly cover client here. But Elixir has like many libraries like uh, H3 Poison and I think Finch. Uh, there's a couple other ones too. They have their own, you know, some some are faster, some are not. Uh, H3 Poison is my go-to. It's like based on Hackney, I think. It's kind yeah, of, yeah, uh, in our My primary reason to go H3 Poison route is uh, testability, which again, we'll get to probably. But it's very easy to test H3 Poison API calls with the XVCR library, which I like to rely on, which doesn't work with some of, the, some of these other clients. Uh, but I think Finch is like more performance-driven. It tries to really make calls fast. I really don't, I honestly don't know how it works at a low level, so I don't know what makes it more performant, but that's the uh, motivation to use Finch. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. And surprisingly, I think on the Elixir community, I mean, we, we don't have that many libraries on, on like some parts of the day-to-day -day dev cycle, let's say that, and then, there, then we have a whole bunch of yeah. HTTP yeah. clients. It's kind of ridiculous. <laughs> there used to be one, I even remember there used to be one called HTTP Potion. This was like 2015, yes, like before yes. HTTP Poison came out. And I think that that was my go-to. And then I always would confuse between those two because I think it's just a couple letters that are different. And <clears throat> as the transition happened in the community, because HTTP Poison relied more 
more integrated with poison better and you know was like you know better i guess the community said it was better so that was better it was a rough transition but you're right there's so many clients i know they were i think there's a rapper i think either either finch is a rapper around something or there's a rapper around finch as well which the elixir core team are working on too there yeah there are definitely so many libraries and clients. I'm surprised I haven't built one yet. <laughs> the next thing on your bucket list, I guess, right? I mean, you basically yeah. just finished the book. Now you're going to write an HTTP client. Yeah, it's perfect. Like the, the, the natural transition of things. <laughs> exactly. But yeah, but a little fun anecdote, like a former colleague of mine always called HTTP poison, HTTP poisson. I like that. I think I'm going to start doing that. <laughs> so, yeah. But I think it's interesting to see, like, because, like, I mean, if you actually look into all of these uh, transitions and all of these, like, little libraries, there's, like, a good reason for all of those existing. I mean, there's also Mint, I think, which has been actually from the core team, right? And, like, one of core idea of Mint is that it doesn't do, how's it called again? Like, basically, it doesn't, doesn't do any process management. Like, you don't have, like, connection management or connection pools. Like, HD Poison, for example, which uses Hackney and right. Android, they do connection pools for you. <laughs> and Mint deliberately does not, which is like a design choice to, if you have certain criteria and certain scenarios where maybe you want to actually manage your connections, the TCP connections yourself, then Mint is the go-to. And I think Finch is using Mint under the hood. Is that yes, right? yes. Yep. So yeah. So there's like, there's actually a surprising amount of thought going into this, but I still think it's kind of interesting to see how many people are dabbling with HTTP clients in Elixir. It's, it's an interesting, an interesting experience for sure. But a, a long story short, I mean, at the end of the day, like when you, when you start with, with, with like your, your career and also start, I guess, with, with writing Elixir, you probably will have to do some HTTP call at some point. So you're like you're consuming an API, but then there's the whole other slew. At some point, you also very likely will have to provide an API. You'll have to design an API. And Elixir and in general, like the development ecosystem gives you a whole slew of like solutions for that. I think like the big ones arguably in the room are more of a REST API. And I'm very deliberately don't say REST because uh, <laughs> let's just say that most REST APIs out there arguably are not really rest at least not if you like we look at the original paper but uh, the other one is of course graphql and i think you have a fair bit of experience with graphql right ruddy yeah yeah i've been using uh, graphql since before absent was actually published the, the non-rc candidate was published it's great in certain scenarios but but i mean you can cover before we get to graphql i would love to cover more like you said like the more resty <laughs> parts right uh generally and i don't know sasha what's your pref what your preference is like i have when i when i build apis uh rest apis right now i just use phoenix uh the api only version just keeps the code simpler and consistent with the rest of the the non api web apps and you know phoenix is a lot of this management for you testing everything right i know some people are very hardcore plug cowboy only like just use uh cowboy and plug.cowboy package and run that as a uh, an application the supervision tree because cowboy itself provides you that you know concurrency where every request is its own process right so they're like you get the same similar performance management as phoenix and you don't get the heavy weight phoenix library along with it which i i don't understand completely i remember when i worked at blockfi in 2020 everyone was anti-Phoenix APIs. And I thought I was making valid cases, but I think they had their minds made up to only use Plug and Cowboy. I wonder where where you fall in that spectrum. To be honest, I fall more in the line of like, let's use Phoenix 
There are cases where we I did not use Phoenix, but that was always in a scenario of okay, this app like it doesn't really need to build an API. It has like I don't know, like these three endpoints, maybe a health endpoint, and <laughs> apart like the thing it actually does is not providing an API to be used as an like for somebody calling that API, but like doing some other thing, right? Like consuming events, doing something with that, triggering some other work, but it still needed like maybe like a few endpoints to do a few little things. And in those cases, I actually did that. I just used plug with Cowboy, added these few little endpoints and that, that was it. But for anything which is like more sophisticated than that, I just, I use Phoenix. I mean, if you actually use the Phoenix generators, for example, with like this, where there are a whole bunch of like arguments and options you can pass it down to, then you can create like a very slim let's say, version of Phoenix without, for example, the whole um, assets pipeline and all that kind of things, you can remove that from the equation. And if you really build API only, right. why wouldn't you? Right, right, right. I mean, you can generate Phoenix, yeah, from, yeah, like I said, you can use Phoenix generators with like flags to remove HTML, even Ecto and all yeah. that stuff, right? Yeah. yeah, I think a lot of companies, I don't want to say a lot of companies, some companies that I've worked with and my com- current company and the companies I'm advising because I'm advising them, they now use templates, right, to generate that they'll use to, to generate all the other kind of applications, right? So that's where Phoenix, using the same Phoenix pipeline for non-APIs and APIs makes sense because you, know, you have the same Docker files, same dependencies, same deployment infrastructure. If you do have a Phoenix version upgrade, it's the same changes. You have to like funnel through all the applications, which you can use automated tools like Shepard for, right? So uh, it, it makes the management of all services and making sure all the services are up to date to a specific version a lot easier, right? And and I, I, I will always tell this to like my advisees <laughs> that the less amount you give engineers to think about while building feature, the more productive they will be, right? The more standards you have, the less things you have to think about of, within those standards and the more focused they'll be towards the goal, which I, I know is like not always great, <laughs> but for startups and like smaller companies, that's like a good way to think about it. So uh, yeah, using a, a standardized way, uh, Phoenix uh, to build all their web applications uh, makes sense. I, I think the only thing I can think against it is the compilation time. If you're just building like adding a health check API and adding Phoenix increase the compilation time, but I don't think it's by much, <laughs> right? It's like what? Two, two minutes, and I don't think it's like a life-changing difference, but uh, people disagree. No, I, I wouldn't even necessarily go on the, the, the compilation time route for my, myself personally. I would then, in the case where a delivery do not go for Phoenix, then it's just one less dependency I have to care about, right? Like one less dependency I have to upgrade and, and keep in sync. And in those right. cases where, like, that makes sense, like where, where it basically where the added complexity doesn't justify um, the productivity gain. And like I said, if I have to add like a health check uh, some other checks and maybe like one endpoint to I don't know flush a cache or whatever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, yep. the, there's not much value to be gained there. But in those cases, I also I never deal with complex response scenarios, right? Like where I have to right. maybe build up or like a JSON response based on like some query the user gave me, whatever. Like all of those are not are cases where I would then arguably reach for Phoenix. <laughs> but if it's really like right. an HTTP endpoint that does this one thing, gives like a simple JSON response, then then you can you can go a long way with, with Pluck and, yep. and, and, and Cowboy. And I mean, at the end of the day, if then your application actually involves in something more, it's not that hard to, to upgrade to a full-blown Phoenix setup. So because at the under the under the hood, Phoenix still uses Plug. So, right. Yeah. 
I guess whatever floats your boat and like uh, uh, the day old wisdom, it depends. Yeah, <laughs> totally. Nadia, and to, to come back to, I think you, you also posed an initial question about like where, where do I land and like also rest and GraphQL land, right? I actually, I think it's like probably a bit of a blasphemy scenario. I've, I have yet to work on a GraphQL project. I have never worked on a GraphQL project yet. All wow. the, the, the API projects I've been working on were rest based. And I think there is a lot of merit in REST. I think the biggest merit arguably in REST is not even REST itself, but that it actually respects and honors the ideas behind HTTP. Let's say that. Yeah. Like caching and like all of these things which come along with HTTP and like using all the different methods to achieve different things and give the like real meaning. I think that is like the, the biggest plus for going the REST route. And that is, for example, something you, like GraphQL does differently. Let's just say that. I think I've heard it said like GraphQL treats HTTP like a dump pipe, which is in of itself, there's not, not nothing bad in there of itself, but I mean, right. like, usually, at least in my experience, GraphQL would be one endpoint I go to, and that is like a post or a, sometimes a get. And then like most of the guarantees you get from HTTP basically, poof. <laughs> right. Which, like I said, it's not, not bad in of itself. It's a trade-off you can be making, but um, yeah. I tend to like some of the some of the ideas behind um, like what HTTP gives you, especially when you go into caching. Because the, the I, I we I, I was working on a project um, a few years back, and there we actually were building for like a high scale, real timey uh, scenario. And wanted to use caching as much as possible, so we didn't have to overprovision a whole bunch of servers. Uh, right. And in that case, we deliberately did not go with GraphQL because I said, "Okay, we want to really want to use a lot of caching here. We want to have different endpoints uh, with which have specific responses, and uh, want to rely on the whole infrastructure of the internet to 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 just do caching for us where possible." Mm-hmm. So yeah, in that case we we, we opted for us, um, deliberately opted for not going with GraphQL. But I mean, if if that is like a scenario where you say, okay, we have a low, we have a different uh, scenario where like classic HTTP caching is just not important, then a lot of these advantages then again go out of the window, and you can say, yeah. okay, let's right. use GraphQL because it has a whole other bunch of other nice properties. But I guess you can say more about that, Ali. Yeah, I mean, uh, I. I have been able to uh, do HTTP caching quite easily with GraphQL. It just needs a little bit extra thought. That's it's it's not that it can't be done. In fact, it's pretty easy to do it. It just needs like you to think about it for like fifteen minutes, right? I think I think it does get a. When I hear HTTP caching as the primary reason to not choose GraphQL, I it kind of like you know I'm like uh I don't know about that. But I mean, biggest reason to not to not choose GraphQL should be it's not needed. Right. That should be the yeah, biggest true. reason. Right. Yeah. So I agree with that. And what I love about GraphQL the most, which I, I'm surprised I'm not seeing it at any company that uses GraphQL do, besides the companies I have added it to, <laughs> is using the contract, right? The schema or JSON to do like a client side query validation to make sure your queries are valid. And that's huge. Like it just the integration test, it's so easy. Your server can be on a separate repo, you can't give a separate repo on your CI, you can git pull your server's schema.json or schema.graphql and run client-side query validator, make sure all your queries at build time are valid, right? Yeah, it doesn't do complete validation. That For that, you're going to need end-to-end tests, but that's huge. Like To accomplish that with REST takes, I mean, it's very hard, you know? Like I have accomplished that with REST with a combination of Ecto schemas, REST combination of protocol buffers. It's, I've accomplished that, but so much more work. And 
yeah, it just makes things simple. Another reason for me to use GraphQL is something like Hasura, which uh, I mentioned to you, Sasha, before the call. But what Hasura is, it's a it's an open source service that you can use to just spin up a container and run a GraphQL API around your database, right? With permissions, you can get only permission, you can all that, right? It's huge for a startup, right? Like it's huge. I mean, if you're if you work for a startup, you rely on you know zaps and stuff to you know kind of roll out your first feature, and you want to capture those database updates and still like authorize database uh, the the API calls. It literally takes you ten minutes to r- write a GraphQL API around a database with permissions, and it's it's just amazing. It also allows you to wrap each GraphQL call into a REST call. So this GraphQL query, whenever you make a REST call at this endpoint, it translates to this GraphQL query. So GraphQL interface is in public, but the REST one is. So it, it it's huge for me. That's the biggest, that's how, that's my biggest usage of GraphQL. So I don't really write absent servers as much. I've written it like maybe like 10 or 12 times. But most of the times that I use GraphQL, I spin up Hasura to ease the management and, you know, uh, not have to worry about building APIs to just access simple aspects of data. And another thing about GraphQL is subscriptions. That's being able to subscribe to real-time data updates with close to zero amount of work. Again, with something like Hasura that spins up GraphQL right away, it's it's huge. Hook it up with Phoenix Live View. You know, you have a real-time dashboard. It's a simple Live View that just with either a present state update or a polling, whatever you want to do, that just uh, is subscribed to that that GraphQL subscription. You can get a real-time dashboard for your database with very little work. (laughs) So uh, anyway, GraphQL is great for stuff like that uh, in my eyes. Yeah, I I can certainly see that. And I I also think that I probably... I probably should take the time at some point to <laughs> dig a bit deeper into the whole ecosystem around that. My my contact up until now was mostly around okay. I, I visited the website. I've read through the docs. I also like wrote a schema of my own with absence in this case. Like I, I did a bit of like experimentation, but ne- I never put anything into production. Right? Like I never yeah. used it in Angular. I <laughs> I have I tell this to my uh, men- men- mentees that you know if you want to use something, if you want to like kind of use like GraphQL for example, if you want to build it, if you want it to be built start using it but how would you use it without building and that's where like tools like that already have a graphql server built once you build a build a real-time dashboard of a database right or, uh, and as you update the database from a different app you'll see boom things are popping up and you'll see how with the ease the ease with which you're able to do it once you start using these features of graphql like flexibility on the client side subscriptions and all that and client side query validation what you'll realize the power of it and you will, without having to put the effort to build the server side, right? You'll understand what GraphQL is about without having to build it. And then when the time comes and you, when you deem that this particular project is good for GraphQL, now because of experience, you'll be able to judge better what's good for GraphQL, then you can probably build your first apps in the server. Yeah, okay, fair enough. But I, I think that the wisdom outside out there in the community around GraphQL is not necessarily that, right? I, I see a lot of people talking about, okay, yeah, here, Epson, GraphQL, it's like, a, it's a great tool to, to build your own GraphQL APIs. And from what I can gather, it seems that Epson is actually like a really, really nice thing to build Gra- uh, GraphQL APIs with. Like, I don't think there's any really better. Huh? I don't think there's anything better than Epson. Um, I mean, yeah. even... I mean, Apollo, I, I used it and I was like, wow, I wish it had the, the I wish the resolvers and or the data loaders worked the way they worked in apps and apps just integrate so well with Ecto and it does a lot of the N plus one query handling 
on its own that other libraries don't do. I've used uh, it in Python, Haskell, and JavaScript. Not Ruby. I was going to use in Ruby, but it was so bad that I didn't it didn't even get to using it. So yeah, I think Absent is the best GraphQL client. Uh, sorry, GraphQL server library. Yeah, yeah, okay, but then it actually underlines my argument even more. Like that, I feel like the community out there is not necessarily. I don't see a lot of people saying, "Hey, maybe try out." first consuming GraphQL or like or using something like Hasura, but it, I see the talk, especially in the Elise community, is more around, hey, Absinthe was great, use Absinthe, right? Is, is that wrong? I don't think it's wrong. I just, I think it's just hard to find time. So if you want to try out GraphQL, if you want to understand how it works, you could understand the power of that, internalize the power of that without having to build your own Absinthe server and maintain it. That's where I was going at. If you don't have time, if your company doesn't want to invest time in that, if you want to just like leverage certain features of GraphQL that REST doesn't have, it's subscriptions and client-side flexibility to be specific. It's a great way to spin up a reliable server that doesn't need to be managed and still deliver features which can easily be delivered. And honestly, a few of the biggest reasons why companies don't go the GraphQL route is the amount of effort it takes. Even with apps, it takes a while to build an API. It, I mean, there are hacks around it. You can use, you know, Ecto Schema reflections to build your apps and schema, for example, but that's probably not the best way to do it. Right. So it just takes all that effort out and allows you to experience GraphQL. Once you experience it, once you once you start using it, you'll be able to internalize why it's good. And that will that will put you in a place where you are almost as good as an exper- experienced GraphQL person without even having to build a server. Okay, interesting. And what are then the cases? I mean, you just said earlier with like one sentence that like you wouldn't use GraphQL if you don't need it. But well, when don't you need it? When do you, would you, for example, Adi say, okay, I'm going to reach for something REST now or something completely different? I don't know, Photobuff, VRPC. Yeah, REST is default in my eyes. It's it's, uh, all the infrastructure everything is set up for using REST, right? So if you want to build like a an API endpoint in an application that's already built, uh, already has web, adding a new REST endpoint is a lot easier than adding like a new GraphQL interface. Especially if it's, it's like, I think especially if it talks to a front-end app, uh, GraphQL authorization, resource level authorization can get tricky because, you know, as you have relationships, you can access more things. But it, for example, if you have a child-parent relationship and a uh, and a parent-child relationship, right? Through a parent, if you if you val if you're authorizing at a parent level, right? For I mean, I'm trying to think of a quick analogy, but I can't. <laughs> uh, for okay, for a person, you can get all the all the cars they own. Sorry, I, I have a car next to me, so I'm just looking at that. Have to to see the person's car, the token needs to match the person, right? But say you did not add that validation at the cars level. From cars, you can get all the people, and from all people, you can get all the cars, right? You know what I'm saying? Because they have that flexibility, that authorization gets tricky. So exposing GraphQL to a client-side API directly, where you use uh, client authorization, that that's a lot more work than machine to machine. Right, that's another thing to keep in mind. Where you're, where you're writing an API for front end, maybe GraphQL is not the right choice. But something like an API gateway, how API gateway translates, GraphQL is amazing. Because schema stitching and all that, it's it makes life a lot easier using GraphQL there. Interesting, because because I, from my, what I've seen out there, people, uh, it seems to me that like especially GraphQL seems to be promoted in this scenario of okay, you build the server, it has the self descriptive schema, and now all the apps and all their clients they can just go there and read that and, and build their queries and, and build their mutations and whatnot. I don't think I've heard of like using GraphQL in like a machine to machine scenario. Interesting. So. 
that I feel that that's news. Is, is is that common wisdom out there in the GraphQL air quotes community, or is this? I mean, is this Adi wisdom? <laughs> this is this is probably closer to Adi wisdom, the community wisdom. I mean, my interaction with GraphQL community isn't as much because you know it's been limited to Elixir, and with Elixir and Phoenix supporting Live View and stuff, mm -hmm. front end not being completely separate from back end, right? Like gen mm -hmm. general cases, the, my GraphQL experience have been machine to machine, with a couple exceptions. And when I did have to add that authorization to GraphQL, that was very hard. Okay. It was because because we were doing that. Gra the GraphQL schema was a stitch schema, right? So adding a resource level authorization for the for a SID scheme was very hard. We just decided, okay, we are we're going to partition the query after a particular depth, right? You cannot query for parents after a particular depth. In that way, we're going to have to keep adding authorizations, right? So that, yeah, anyway, absent made it a little easier because you can add like, you know, specific uh, defaults to data loaders. It's like uh, add like a partition ID, right? Like that everything gets scoped by that ID. But even with that, the flexibility, I mean, flexibility comes at a cost of complexity, right? A GraphQL giving clients flexibility means that they can break things. They can request, yes, yes. break the scope altogether. And that's where the extra thought needs to come in place for authorization and especially working like a fintech or a healthcare space in the US. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that, that is basically what also I've, I've been, like a consideration I've been, I've been making in the past where like, okay, if you actually build like a GraphQL API and maybe you have like certain even real-time level requirements, then it's harder to optimize some of these queries because, well, you literally might don't know what exactly the queries might be. And if you like build more of a RESTy API and say, okay, this is this is the thing you ask for, this is the thing you get, you can optimize that more. But yeah, like I said, I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, it depends. It depends. It, it fully depends. Okay, but... So like to circle back, we talked a lot about GraphQL right now. Um, so you said that REST is a default. So, so how, how do you then usually go about building a REST API in Elixir? I mean, we talked about that Phoenix versus Plug, right? I guess boils down to Phoenix, but what are some wisdoms and some learnings and that maybe even some, some nuggets of knowledge you would give to people who maybe start off with building APIs in Elixir? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, I mean, <laughs> it's pretty pretty basic, you know, two router pipelines, like one authenticated and one non-authenticated for like, you know, health check and other APIs. Yeah, I mean, m maybe I've done it so many times that I'm probably a little desensitized to the potential complexities of APIs. So yeah, I, I think at least compared to GraphQL, the it's Phoenix makes it very simple to add APIs because I think it even generates an API pipeline even as, as part of generator even yes, if you're not using it. yeah yeah so yeah which I think is just accepts JSON that's that's basically what it is but yeah I mean I can talk more about authentication slash authorization aspect of that like that can be definitely tricky based on you know what kind of API you're building right like if you're building an API for a front end obviously you need you, you're gonna need like a, a, a authentication plus authorization system where you know you, you're you do validate some kind of a JWT validation and tie it to like a front-end client, right? Like a, like, a, like a user, right? If you're doing machine-to-machine, -machine, my first instant, it's instinct is to just go with like a, what is called like an opaque token. And yeah, that because that's simple. But yeah, I'm sure that can be its own podcast episode, uh, authentication, authorization for APIs. But besides that, I'm not sure what else is really worth mentioning in terms of complexity. What, what are some Sasha wisdoms while building REST APIs? <laughs> Hi, this is Charles Maxwood from Top End Devs, and lately I've been coaching some people on starting some podcasts and, in some cases, just taking their career to the next level. You know, whether you're beginner going to intermediate, intermediate going to advanced, whether you're trying to get noticed in the community or go freelance, I've been helping these folks figure out how to get in front of people, how to build relationships, and how to build their careers and max out. 
and, and just go to the next level. So if you're interested in talking to me and having me help you go to the next level, go to topendevs.com slash coaching. I will give you a one hour free session where we can figure out what you're trying to do, where you're trying to go and figure out what the next steps are. And then from there, we can figure out how to get you to the place you want to go. So once again, that's topendevs.com slash coaching. Um, some startup wisdoms. One startup wisdom is that you probably want to think, especially about like cash control headers earlier than you than you might expect. Let's say that because if you don't, then devices out there, I'm going to assume defaults, which are not all equal. <laughs> so yes, cash control in HTTP is something you at least might want to have a brief thought about it. And even if you just say, please don't cache this. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's, yeah. a, that's a reasonable default to make in the beginning, maybe. But otherwise, um, certain operating systems, devices, whatever, are going to make assumptions for you if you don't include that. And it might lead to very weird Heisenbugs, which are super hard to reproduce until you figure that's, out, wait, it's caching. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. It, 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 it becomes like, yeah, it becomes like a second nature to for you to do add these things as you keep doing it. But that's, yeah, if if you have not experienced it before, it, yeah, it can be a huge pain. <laughs> yeah, I think some of my the hardest bugs I tracked down in my career were related to caching, and especially because when you actually get like a bug report or whatever, and then you like you try it out, you can't reproduce it. And like, what the fuck? But then like maybe you have a test device, and it happens on a test device, and you're like, what the heck is happening? <laughs> But like at some point you figure out, oh wait, this one response like got cached, and it it can even be like super. I'm not even I don't want to say dangerous, but uh, it can even breach privacy, right? Like if you actually end up caching like certain I don't know yeah. profile endpoint responses, and right. then suddenly people get like a profile of another user, which might include sensitive data. Right? Yeah, no bueno. You don't want to do that. Yeah, um, I mean here's a simple one, right? Some devices like really overestimate the cache uh, duration, and yes, I mean if an account is deactivated for emergency reasons that you know they go that, that should not be cached <laughs> I, I actually think now that, that now that you talk about it like that it might not be the worst idea if actually phoenix does like a default there that just says okay like no cash in, in, yeah no cash exactly in our pipeline exactly. explicitly a hey, uh, no cash like if you want to control yeah. it true go ahead but default is no cash that's what we do and the template app that we use to create all the apps we put the no cash there's a plug that puts those headers yeah yeah that might, might be the worst idea to be honest but yeah part of that some wisdom i mean like one big wisdom but that's not really related to elixir specifically but in general software engineering is don't put your business logic in your controller i think phoenix is actually quite good on that with yeah. um, context and like pr 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 promoting that and saying okay like have this different module which is not related to web it's also one of the big things i'm i'm pushing right now at my current employer where we want to migrate to like a more well to not non-microservice system, but to like one module, which still implies some of the separation of concerns from microservices, but the one big code base. And there we deliberately have like a web part of the app, but it just calls into the other parts. And the other parts have like no clue that web exists. It could be called from a command line application. It could be called from an event triggering. It could be called yep. from whatever, right? Like web is just one interface to the outside world. Yeah. And if you actually want to read more into that, there's a pretty good article on... Wait, let me look it up. I'm going to give you the title in a second. Uh, but that basically gives a good article about some of these ideas uh, and why maybe there is some merit into just considering HTTP one gateway into the world and not the source of truth for everything. And a part of that, uh, yeah, uh, don't trust user input. 
that's also, I think, a big thing and yeah. not at least a specific. Just assume that users are going to send you garbage. And then again, I mean, that is where GraphQL is kind of nice because you can at least impose some structure. Some kind of type, yep. <laughs> uh, some things. You can, I mean, you can, for example, say this property has to be there. It's not allowed to be now, right? Like and, and if right. that level of enforcement is not... Right, right. You don't have that on JSON API. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, attaching your APIs each, again, this like, this might be like an extreme way of doing it and might also be a tangent, but like attaching like an Ecto embedded schema, like a non database, non source back schema for each client request that you're getting. So you can do validation before doing anything with that data is, it's a way, that's the way we do things. We have like a form pattern, all the forms in the front end, the Phoenix front end that are submitted have their own Ecto schemas that are, that don't have a table, obviously. You know, you, just using it as a validation source of our validation library. That's a great way to deal with like user inputs and stuff, and like also keeping your front end really separate from the back end, right? Like it, to me, it's just weird that your the pattern is that your sometimes form, and not sometimes, most people do it this way. That form directly goes to like the Ecto schema chain set, and the pattern of writing chain set is that generally people just add all the fields to cast. <laughs> Right, because that's just how people think. You know, they, they, one way of separating that is writing multiple chain set specific to their use case, so certain fields can be populated. Another way of doing that is like writing a form, so you can keep the chain set part constant in the schema and just having different schemas for different client inputs, and that can be extended to JSON APIs as well. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Just to circle back on what I said, like the article I met was like DDD hexagonal onion clean CQRS, how I put it all together from Alberto Grassa. And I'm going to put a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's a good read on, on, on why some of these separation of concern ideas put probably a good idea. Yeah. Just, just, just to put that out there. Actually, fun fact. I mean, just in the no mention about Ecto schemas, and I've seen that mentioned also on the Elixir forum a few times. There's like this little pet project I've been working on and off for, for a while now. Not quite. I don't really get it finished, but the idea is to basically like to be like a schema agnostic valid validator for Phoenix. So the idea is like it's it's basically it says okay, give me a piece of data, give me a schema, and ask me if and then basically then answer the question: Is this does this piece of data conform to this schema? The big thing is there are some some projects out there which do that specifically with certain schemas, this project is deliberately set up to not assume any kind of schema, but there are multiple adapters for it. So I actually have been writing a JSON schema adapter. I also wanted to, I also thought it could be like Ecto, Ecto schemas and Ecto change set could be an interesting adapter for that. And then have this other part of the project, which is then plug and Phoenix specific to say, hey, on this route, I expect this schema. And like all the, all the requests which come in need to conform to that so that I then actually can say, okay, if I get to this part of my controller, I can at least assume that the data conforms to this schema. And if it doesn't, it, uh, like an error gets returned, right? That has been a project I've been working on and off for <laughs> the past two years. I guess <laughs> that's, I don't really that's get so done. funny. That's so funny because one of my pet projects is very similar that I've been wanting to spend some time on. It's converting from JSON schema to Ecto schema and back and forth. Again, the, the goal is to like generate contracts for REST APIs, like mm -hmm. basically at the same level as GraphQL, right? I think I think what you're doing, there's a huge, there's definitely huge overlap in terms of coding and at least an app side of what you're doing, right? What you're doing, validating any logic with any schema can act is actually a meta of this, you know, like it's like if you do yours, you'll kind of do what I want to do too. So that's 
it's pretty cool. Yeah, it, it was born from from something we did at this um, project I mentioned earlier, where we had this REST API, where we at some point like, basically we agreed on JSON schemas as the source of truth for contracts between mobile clients and the backend. Right, like we said, okay, like this JSON schema is basically what um, like we're responsible for follow that JSON schema, and the request is expected to follow that JSON schema, and then we use that schema inside of a backend to say, okay, any request which comes in like any thread endpoint uh, needs to conform to this particular JSON schema. And if it doesn't, we just return like an error thing we, we like agreed upon. So um, that was, so honest, it was so nice. <laughs> because, I mean, even though JSON schemas are not super powerful and you can't really map, like, I don't know, like relationships or anything in it, you can still say, hey, this property has to be then has to be an object and <laughs> it needs to be F and these properties, which has to be a string and a number. But like, when you don't need to do that kind of validation anymore in your controller, it's just it's just nice. So that is like where, where it was born from because surprisingly, that is, I think, uh, like a learning I took away from it is that this is something like Phoenix actually doesn't give you any kind of support with. You have to right. build it yourself. That's, you just have to build it yourself. And even like maybe like some w- wisdom you would usually apply, like pattern matching, for example, on the re- on the request might then mean, okay, if that something is missing, yeah, well, you get an error response automatically from Phoenix. Yeah, you can hook into that, yeah. but it's not, it's not, Obvious, let's say that. So, yeah, the BOSAs, that was like the motivation where, where, where that project was born. Nice. So maybe at some point I'll actually finish. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> but yeah, another big learning for me and also like in general, for I think for API building is something, and I don't have a good answer to that yet, is versioning. And that's not something you might necessarily need in the beginning, but at some point you're going to encounter that. Like, well, how do you version your APIs? And I, to put that up front, I'm not a big fan of doing V1 endpoints, V2 endpoints, V3. Yeah. So what no. is your approach to versioning, Adi? There's none. <laughs> I mean, uh, <laughs> if your endpoint, I guess if the endpoint stays the same, make sure it's backwards compatible, at least, you know, for a good amount of time. If it's internal, then making sure that you heavily rely on end-to-end tests, right? But external APIs, yeah, obviously, it's tricky, man. The V1, V2 thing comes because, you know, of not non-backwards compatibility, right? So I don't think anyone wants to do V1, V2. <laughs> it just happens that way. But yeah, definitely, I'm, I'm also not a fan of that. I, I don't think there's an answer to this. And that's where I think GraphQL is useful because it the, the built-in versioning is pretty neat. And allowing people to kind of do like static validation for an API to know, to let them know that something has broken. Hey, the API has changed at a CI level. That helps. And I, I guess that's where like translating your REST API to contracts would really help, right? What's kind of what you're doing. Uh, you were doing it on the server side, but also having it on the client side, right? One thing I did, I remember in 2017 as a project, it was like pre-GraphQL. And I, I, I wanted to be like, hey, you know, have a contract and both the apps that were talking to each other were internal kind of applications. And I just built like an, a shared library, ectoschema library. That was a schema that was the representation of the API. So the client would use a schema to send requests and the server would use a schema to validate the requests, right? So, and since both are the same dependencies, uh, assuming the versions are the same, <laughs> but that's a lot easier to manage than other things, right? But assuming everything is there, the tests were passing, right? So something like that, like protocol buffers give you that really, really well, right? Like they, they have a built-in way of doing that, but even like what you were saying, like JSON schema or any, any kind of validation, any kind of JSON representation of API, Swagger, whatever you want to call it, like that will decrease the likelihood of things breaking and then you can probably roll 
called a non-backwards compatible release. I'm curious, what is what tools exactly does GraphQL give you for versioning? Because I mean, I I'm not familiar with any like specifically for versioning tools. Right. So be, be, when people say the versioning is built in, it's because the schema, the schema introspection itself is the version, right? So generally, if you're supposed to use Graph, if you're using GraphQL, you should have a copy of. You should ensure that hey, the schema that you have is up to date with the schema introspection. You can get you can do the schema introspection query right, and get a schema. So make sure that schema is up to date. So whenever, for example, I uh, write a GraphQL client side, I wrote a, an application that uses GitHub's GraphQL to visualize basically GitHub comments. Uh, what GitHub did, you know, earlier this year, I did that a couple of years ago. They're copying me totally. But <laughs> uh, <laughs> but <clears throat> uh, the, on the client side, uh, what I did is I, I ran like a nightly job which just made the schema uh, introspection query to GitHub and the results of that I just wrote to a file schema.json if there's any git diff it'll break and it'll let me know hey the GraphQL schema has updated for GitHub. That's right. smart. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. And I think, I mean, you can probably dodge a lot of the issues if you like actually follow semantic versioning rules, right? Like if you say, okay, I, I, I understand that adding this property, for example, is not going to break downstream clients. But I mean, if you then actually get to breaking changes, you have to consider different approaches. Um, there's something I've always wanted to try. And I would be interested to hear your uh, opinion on that, Hardy, uh, but I've never really got the opportunity to was header-based versioning. So basically that you allow clients to send like in, in the header, like a request, okay, this is like the API version I expect. And then you can actually, like my idea was to extract that like from, from the headers and pass that to the, to the views, like in Phoenix reviews, and then say, okay, I want to re render the V2 whatever response. And then you can basically say, okay, now I can just serve the data to the clients depending on the headers and yeah, be, be, be very flexible in how I want to render those. What's the advantage of header-based versioning over like adding it to the URL path itself? Uh, I like yeah. URL path more, it's more, it feels more explicit. But because you can then, so the biggest advantage for me personally is, is that for like any kind of like people who come new to the project, or like if, especially if you have multiple clients and you have like a public API, you can just say, hey, like by default, it always uses the latest version, right? It might respond to the latest version. So you don't have to teach them about, okay, a whole bunch of potential uh, endpoints. But you can then also still more gracefully uh, de degrade the API for older clients. You can say, okay, now maybe give a response back with, uh, with some information about, okay, we, we are going to remove support for this particular version, but you can still use the API with, with, with newer versions without having to update all the part of the code. Pass. I see what you're saying. Over URL pass. Yeah. You're say, you're I'm saying, not sure if I'm making sense. <laughs> no, you are. You are. You are. I, you're saying if old clients made have built their API based on a version, and they because of that they already have that in the header. New clients can still use the same URL, just yeah. have some other header, and without having to update old clients. Yeah, and, and still support multiple versions. I see what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I feel like that could be dangerous, but if, yeah, if managed correctly, uh, this use case, in this use case, it makes sense. But I do rely on explicit versus kind of implicit version. Just like it, there's a chance people don't know what version they're using, what they are with that, right? Because there's a default one, right? And the headers are not necessarily as visible as like a, a version in the path. I'm not experienced with the use case that you're talking about. So maybe I, I don't see that as clearly as you do. You could probably do this 
same with like a path-based version. I mean, at the end of the day, you could probably have like a, in the Phoenix order, you could say, hey, my version, I actually captured that right. Right, and passed exactly. it over as a property. So yeah. But but the uh, UI will be different. That, that, I mean, what you're saying for the clients will be a, a different use case. Yeah. Yeah. You could also, I mean, like, you don't necessarily have to go with, with like semantic versioning numbers there. You could also say, I'm going to go with, with the date time, like with the date of build, right? Like when, right. This, when this version was built and then I just assume that, okay, if this was built after point X, I deliver that and response. And if not, then I deliver the other. I always wanted to experiment with that because I felt it was, would be more, it would give more flexibility without polluting URLs. Because I mean, at the end of the day, do we really care in my resource descriptors about the version? Do, do I not really care about the, like, this is the resource? And then I, I'd say, okay, like I, I, as like a reality of software engineering, I do have to, of course, adhere to some kind of backwards compatibility. But at the end of the day, it's this resource, right? Right. So yeah, that was my thinking. But maybe maybe there's not that much value to be gained. I always envision it to be more flexible than just than having to, to add new new URLs, new paths. Maybe I'm wrong. <laughs> Who knows? I don't think there's a wrong answer here. Yeah, probably is another wrong answer. It always depends. Yeah. Okay. And so, I mean, we, we kind of touched on it a little bit earlier, but as everybody who has listened to Elixir Mix before knows, you're a big fan of testing. So, so what is your testing strategy for REST and or GraphQL, or does it differ? Does it differ in how? Right? Yeah, it totally differs. I mean, with GraphQL, like I said, the schema dot GraphQL just changes it, right? So the approach for me to do GraphQL testing, the integration level tests, is uh, to do a client side query validation. Just uh, for example, if you have a server that's on main and you're, and again, I'm oversimplifying this, you want your client to always match server's main branch, right? In your client CI, you can pull only the schema or GraphQL of the server or just make the make call to server's API and get schema GraphQL, like I was saying earlier, and using that file, run client-side query validations. Uh, I think Apollo has a very simple client, uh, like a, a validator to do that. I wrote common GraphQL client Elixir library, which does client-side query validation in Elixir. It does use Apollo, but it's an Elixir wrapper around it, so it's like prettier. So that's a way to validate your all the GraphQL queries and mutations and all that stuff. Are they like structurally valid, right? That's like huge. There isn't analog and REST for that. So I my approach has always been whenever something changes in the API, not just a web API, but even the, regu- the regular API in a programming API, there should be like a trail in, in the repository. Besides the Git diff, there should be like one file that has changed, right? So I can always query for that file and know that, hey, something has changed, right? And if it could tell me what has changed, that's the more information it gives me, the better, right? So I should always have on my client side CI, something has changed, something has broken, fix it, right? So that's my approach. So contract could be, the, the more explicit the contract is, the easier it'll be for me to fix it. So find a way to do that. XVCR is a good a tool uh, for, on the client side. It allows you to make an HTTP call and record it like a VCR and replay it for your CI to make sure, you know, your tests are passing. So you don't rely on the uh, API being available. And you can have like a nightly or a periodic call to update the XVCR in a separate CI job to make sure it's up to date, right? So a combination of making sure if the API itself changes, something on the client side notifies you, and there is a recorded up-to-date VCR on the client side to keep you for, for, for the regular CI, right? To ensure that 
all the changes you're making are compliant with the current state of the API. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. So, I, but I guess that also then hints towards that you, like the, the kind of tests you do are really about like interface coherence, adhering to contracts and not really necessarily about, um, and at least not on the API level, about business. End-to-end. End-to-end. Okay, that will be end-to-end testing then. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I do do end-to-end. It's it's not possible to do it. It's in some cases, you know, because you do end-to-end tests are not as stable, you know, especially if you're mm-hmm. testing it with external services. There's like timeouts and all that stuff. Services behave differently. So relying on that completely is not the right thing. <laughs> for internal tools, end-to-end is a lot easier to accomplish. You know, you already probably have a Docker file for API. You can just pull that and run a container in the CI. So it's a lot easier to do that for internal ones. External ones, it gets hard. There's a lot to consider. I mean, I actually gave a testing API calls talk thing last year. So if you just go to YouTube and RDI and Gar testing API calls and Elixir, just uh, YouTube that and you can probably find, uh, it, it's called levels of testing API calls, but it's uh, it's full of, I think I, uh, it's full of Pokemon jokes and Dragon Ball jokes. So if, if you guys <laughs> like anime, uh, you should watch it. If you really hate it, then you probably will hate the talk. But yeah, I'm, talks... I'm going to include it in the show notes. There's going to be a link to the talk in the show notes. Nice. But yeah, that will give you, it, it talks about like the first level, second level of using XVCR and how to improve that and ways of, you know, how you can like iterate over and make your test suite of APIs better. Last, I revised it with last year when I gave the talk. I have kind of found a couple more levels since then. A Super Saiyan, a Super Saiyan 2 levels. <laughs> Uh, which I'll which I'll find to put on a, which I'll find some time to put on a blog post sometime and like share with you guys. But it, it's really the idea is the same, right? Contracts, making sure something changes, making sure people are notified. A combination of a job that updates your XVCR and a job that that tests with your XVCR for regular updates. It's trying to end to end is like an obvious thing, right? Like that's obvious. Uh, we should definitely do that, but not completely rely on that because it's not very deterministic and very hard to set up. Well, what is the like, usual t- tool of preference there for doing end-to-end testing? Is it also an Elixir tool or is it something outside of the Elixir community? Well, I mean, it depends. Uh, if it's an in- end-to-end testing, uh, oh, you mean like like a front-end as well? You mean... Uh, I, I mean, like, I mean, end-to-end sure. means like you have to right, right, send right. an HTTP request somewhere and expect a response and then expect something to happen, right? Right, so, right, right. right. What what do you then use to actually write these kind of tests? Because I mean, there are, yeah, like if you want to do browser based testing, you kind of go to Selenium, right? Like all of these toolings right. is out there. But like, right. I see. What, what is yeah. your your tool of choice there? Yeah. Let's talk about browser testing separately. But yeah, for this, like for just testing the API calls end to end in that context, would be generally how I do it is because in test environment I enforce XVCR, right? And test environment, I really like to like keep it kind of like uh, only dependent on the app and, you know, depends like Postgres and other stuff. I generally create like a browser test environment, a new mix environment or uh, an API test environment. That's mm-hmm. what I use. And in that environment, it makes an actual API call. It doesn't use the, you know, XVCR and other things to like kind of block that and have its own tests that make a call and test the response. Basically, make the call the module module that makes API call and see what the response is. Also, there's something we can quite touch on. When testing, the more granular you can make the testing part of your, the, the API part of your code, the better. For example, module A calls module B 
and module B uses HTTP application to be poisoned. That's like one way of doing that. But another way is doing module A calls module B. Module B calls, hey, HTTP client that's configured in my environment and use that. In that way, when you're testing module B, you can test it independent of your HTTP client and just test your HTTP client in test environment with, with XVCR. So if, if all the all the modules that use B, A, A, B, or whatever is whatever uses A can be independent of your HTTP module itself. I, I, I forgot to mention this because this is also one of the things that's like obvious to me now having done it so many times, but it's uh, it, it's something definitely to, uh, worth mentioning. Sasha, uh, have you, do you have any experience with this? Do you agree with this? Yes, I agree a lot with that because, I mean, like, if you remember back, the very first episode I joined Elixir Makes as a guest, we talked about Kindergarten. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, like it, it's literally designed for this, yep. not not necessarily this specific scenario, but for a way right. to abstract away a part of your application behind the behavior and then right. inject an implementation of that behavior uh, based on your configuration. So, yeah, I mean, that's exactly like how I, for example, then use Knigger to, to do that. Like if you have in all the projects since since then, since I've been I've been building the Knigger, where if we had to make an HTTP call somewhere, I always set up like a behavior which says, okay, like these are basically the kind of callbacks I, I want, how I want to expose this dependency. And then there was one implementation which actually did the real API calls, for example, using HTTP poison or another one, which well then injected, I don't know, a mock generated through mocks, for example, right? right. But yeah, that's that's exactly how, how I do it. I mean, at the end of the day, it's it's the Elixir version of, of dependency injection. You could arguably also say, I'm going to inject the module like as an yeah. argument into the function, which is valid. Which is great, I, yeah. I just prefer it that way because yeah. then they have more of a facade scenario and they don't really have to care about how I inject that particular thing yeah. uh, in, into my module. I can just call a module and be done with it. It's more convenient, but there's no right or wrong here. Um, totally. So yeah, yeah. But yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Yeah, like an application level dependency or even like a function level dependency, whatever you want to call it. Like, yeah, making sure your rest rest of your modules are not dependent on the API. But but I guess going back to what I was saying, yeah, I actually forgot. I lost it in my thought where we start talking about this. I think we're talking about end-to-end tests, right? Right. So a separate mix environment where your HTTP client is actually the real HTTP client without XVCR and makes calls to the app, which is either spun up using Docker container because it's internal or makes actual calls. Another good thing these days, you know, all these like services like Stripe, for example, they have a very good mock server or Stripe that you can just pull and run in Docker container to test your API calls. So you should, if you're into end-to-end testing, there's been so much improvement these days. Like, yes, you can use Stripe to make sure all the Stripe calls are working, especially if you think Stripe Connect, it gets really complex and there's a series of calls every track. You should spin up a mock Stripe server to make sure your calls are valid. Uh, I forget the name of that. I think it's, uh, I forget what it's called, but if you just it's a simple Google search, you can just run a Stripe mark in Docker file. And that's interesting. That's also like a, that's an angle. I I mean, like for a, like a specific top project or product like Stripe, I think it makes sense. But that was also like something I've always considered like that there. Like a missing piece in the testing story, let's say that, where you can just say, okay, I have my system under test, and I also want to assume that it does certain calls in a certain way to dependencies. Right. And I have found something which does that like nicely out of the box. I mean, there isn't. Yeah. Another reason to do something like this is stress testing. Like, hey, this call generally takes two seconds. I need, I need like a mock that's a better mock, right? That actual 
actual HTTP call. And like, yeah, uh, when I was at community, uh, st- uh, people did the stress testing by creating a spinning up a mock server, which they would make like, for example, AWS, uh, SNS service is something they were using. And they would make call to the SNS service and they'd say, okay, on average, this call takes about 300 milliseconds, right? And they would configure the mock server to go f- from uh, 1x to 3x of the average, just random time, and just make thousands of calls in the CI, right? Like nightly stress tests and see like how your app can break and all that stuff. That's another way of doing it. The thing is that the stress testing is not quite good because how your production application will perform will not be the same as how your test environment is set up because, you know, a lot of Elixir depends on the platform, the, what's it called, like the, the CPU or the RAM and all that stuff, mm-hmm. right? That that won't be that won't be mimicked, but at least you're, you'll be able to catch types of errors that your application might face. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. We, we kind of deviated a little bit from, from, from <laughs> building APIs, but I, I think there, there is, there's an overlap there because at the end of the day, I mean, this is also about, okay, how does my system behave if like the, my dependencies, which probably expose some kind of API I'm calling, right? If that behavior changes. Did you ever have any, to get also like get back to APIs and testing, did you ever experiment with something like fast testing, for example, where you say, okay, I have my specification of my API, I have the schema my API follows, and now I'm just going to generate basically a whole bunch of valid input, and I just assume that at least I don't get a 500 back, right? Um, not really, actually, no. And that's something I've, I've always wanted to experiment with, like, for example, let's assume you have an endpoint and your chosen method of contracts is like a JSON schema, right? They say, okay, right. my requests need to follow that JSON schema, then you could just go ahead and say, I take the JSON schema because it specifies what kind of inputs I valid, and I run that through like a property-based testing, whatever yeah. scenario. I, I generate all the possible inputs for that, and then I just assume it needs to be like a 200-whatever response, it needs to be a 400-whatever response, which says like, whatever, right. what garbage did you send me here? But it never should be a 500. Right. Yeah, I have not tested that in like an API capacity. I mean, pro- I've, I've done a lot of property testing, but I, I'm, I'm, yeah, this would be good. Yeah, stream data would be a candidate for this and yeah this is yeah I like I that think, idea a lot I think the name is fast testing actually it has a name I, I came up with it on my own and then I did like I talked about it with a colleague and I was like oh it's fast testing and I was like wait that, that thing exists nice <laughs> But yeah, I was just curious because that that is like a combination of, I guess, property-based testing with like API building and API testing. I actually cannot Google it. Fast testing. Hmm. Yeah, okay, maybe, maybe I can Google it and see if I can. If you don't, if you find a link in the show notes, I found it. If you don't, then I didn't. So, but yeah, that's something I've always wanted to explore. Uh, if a day had more hours, and I wouldn't, wouldn't be a death. <laughs> To be honest, like seriously, getting kids. Like, if you want to experiment with tech a lot, don't get kids. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Any last closing words on API building, quality insurance, whatever? Watch my talk. <laughs> There's going to be a link in the show notes. Hey, folks! If you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Okay, then yeah, then let's transition to picks, I guess. Adi, do you have any picks for us this week? I didn't quite. Oh, yeah, actually I do. So since we talked about, a lot about testing, API testing specifically, but if there's, there are folks in, uh, who are listening to this and haven't read it for whatever reason, you should definitely buy and read Testing Elixir by Jeffrey, Matthias, and Andrea. It's a great book, and I'm not just saying because I have my name in front of it, but 
<laughs> it's a very good book. It talks about API testing and kind of a lot of concepts we covered, which could also be applied to non-API testing. And uh, Jeffrey, I've worked with him. He's a he's a very he's a great thinker when it comes to testing. And this is like a great way of like experiencing his how he thinks about testing and learn from him without necessarily working with him. And yeah, it's it's a great book. Uh, I highly recommend it for everyone. I also have another I guess pick. As you guys might have heard, there's been a lot of layoffs lately, and a lot of Elixir companies have laid some really awesome Elixir engineers off. BlockFi, for example, they laid off forty percent of engineering. Oh, I can't remember if it's thirty or forty. It was a huge number of people and it looks like more are coming again i want to put from what i've heard <laughs> and community uh had to also unfortunately lay some people off and there are some really really great elixir engineers uh, to hire uh, i cannot name all of them here so i'm not going to name anyone but please reach out if you're hiring uh, like good elixir engineers i i know a ton at least 15 who are really really good and any company would be lucky to have them i also know of a couple elixir a couple of recruiters from these companies who are experienced in hiring and hiring Elixir people uh, specifically because they used to work for Elixir companies. So if you're looking for a full-time recruiter and you use Elixir, looking at all the big companies, Elixir companies, Pepsi, Score, <laughs> if you want an Elixir recruiter, uh, please reach out. Yeah, there's there's a lot of talent. And unfortunately, in this tough time, some of the best people don't have jobs, which is just really sad. Uh, so yeah, if, if, there's, if, if there's any way, you know, I can help or Sasha, I guess, can help uh, anyone listening, don't hesitate to reach out to us. We'll be happy to try our best and connect you with jobs or the correct recruiters. Yeah, I guess the same goes out for me. Like While we currently aren't hiring Elixir developers, I, like, I know some companies which are, and I mean, are the US, uh, US I'm, I'm more Europe-based, I guess. So, of course, feel free to reach out. Me on Twitter, Wolf4, or Adi on, I don't know, whatever you prefer. I guess also Twitter. <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I will put my email, oh, yeah, email on Twitter yeah. on show notes. Email will be better for me. So, yeah, please, please don't hesitate to reach out. I, I really, yeah, I would encourage people to reach out if they need help. Okay. I've been thinking hard about picks right now. I'm having difficulties coming up with some, like, my, my, like I mentioned earlier, my life has been crazy lately. Not a lot of time to actually dig into techie topics. So you're, you're going to have to live without a techie pick for this week, but I'm going to uphold my tradition of picking video games. <laughs> and a video game I've been enjoying very much lately with friends is Deep Rock Galactic. And Deep Rock Galactic is a cooperative dungeon crawler, kind of. In a nutshell, you, you play dwarfs in space, which mine resources and shoot space bugs. It's a lot of fun. <laughs> so, yes, yeah, nice. if you have a bunch of, maybe some people you want to play some some fun shootery gameplay with and dig into Earth and mine minerals and also have like dwarfs which make funny comments along the way, then Deep Rock Galactic is definitely a game worth checking out. So, yeah, that's my, my video game pick for this week again. I got one more pick, actually. I forgot. I was going to pick this like last last week but our episode got cancelled it's i can't emphasize the impact of having an outlet in these frustrating times like especially in the u.s with all, all the laws being passed in the last two weeks having a punching bag is huge like i didn't i i don't expect it sound funny but having an outlet just literally an outlet for you to release frustration get some workout in the morning and think picture whoever's face has <laughs> a punching bag but it's, it's a great thing to have if you feel like you need workout and need an outlet 
to calm you down during the day. It's very effective. Uh, a, a friend suggested this to me like a couple of years ago. I only bought it recently and it has had such a positive effect on my life in the last two weeks. A punching bag. Please get it. Nice. nice. I, was, I wanted to ask about the punching bag. I can see it. Like we, we're on a video call. So like I can see it in the back of his camera. And I was like, that is new. I haven't seen that one before. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah. Nice. Okay. Then thank you folks for listening and tune in next time when we have another episode of Elixir Mix. Bye-bye. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.